0: Wow! (laughs) Well, we come to the end, the final week, really, of our series on the Bible, prophecy, and future events. It's been an amazing few weeks. Uh, There's one family in our congregation. Each week, they've been giving me a different canned good for a survival kit. So the first week, they gave me cans of peaches. Uh, The second week, they gave me a can of Spam. Third week, they gave me a roll of toilet paper. Thank you for that. Uh, And this week, they gave me, I don't know if you can even see this, it's called Tactical Bacon, Um, It literally has a submachine gun on the front of the can and it's smoke flavored bacon and it says for your survival in the woods. And I appreciate that very much. Uh, If you're joining us, you may think like, I just walked into a conspiracy convention, it seems weird, talking about the end of the world. But really, that term, Armageddon, is appropriate for us to end our series with because it's synonymous in our world with end-of-the-world doomsday scenarios, that cataclysmic battle between good and evil. Um, That word Armageddon is pretty much used synonymously with all sorts of disasters in our world. You see it in our popular culture. That was the trailer for the movie 2012, anyone see that? It's the Mayan calendar that predicts kind of the end of the world with with a series of cataclysmic events on December uh, 21st, 2012. Uh, Armageddon also has a place in politics. You don't just see it in our movies, but in the published diaries of Ronald Reagan, Uh, the former president was so concerned about events in the Middle East in 1981, he wrote this in his journal. He said, sometimes I wonder if we are destined to witness Armageddon. On June 4th of that summer he journaled got word of Israel bombing of Iraq a nuclear reactor. I swear I believe Armageddon is near. Uh, This summer we had the obviously the recession and the governor of California Arnold Schwarzenegger he said if we don't get this budget figured out we are headed towards financial Armageddon. And uh, again that word is used everywhere as we look at global events. I mean like on a sobering note as recently as the earthquake in Haiti Um, which now about 110,000 people will have been told to perish. Um, One said, it felt like the end of the world, a geologic Armageddon or meltdown. Broadly speaking, that term Armageddon has become synonymous for any kind of doomsday scenario that we see out there. And yet, there's some serious misunderstanding of this word. Because if people really understood the concept, they wouldn't be asking, um, when is Armageddon? Or even, what is Armageddon? But they say, so where is Armageddon? Because according to the Bible, Armageddon is a literal place. It is a geographical location. In the final book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 16, it says this Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The Hebrew word there is Harmageddon. Har means mount. Megiddo, that's the that's the Hebrew, literally means slaughter. So in other words, it's the Mount of Slaughter, and it is a literal geographical feature you'll find in northern Israel. I'll go to uh, Google Maps here. If we zoom in, you'll be able to see this from the overhead. You could visit it today. It's 18 miles southeast of Haifa, that's modern-day Israel. It's this extended plain. It's this huge plain that reaches from the Mediterranean Sea to the northern part of Israel, and it's 50 miles miles north of Jerusalem. And it's only 10 miles from Nazareth. What's, where's Nazareth? Where Jesus was born. You can visit this in person today. And this mountain of Megiddo or Armageddon has a rich biblical history. It was at Megiddo that uh, Israel defeated the Canaanites. Uh, you may have heard of Gideon defeating the Midianites, kind of famous. Saul was killed during a battle with the Philistines there. But not only biblical battles, literally historical ones as well. During World War I, British General Edmund Allenby led his army against the Turkish army in a fierce battle at Megiddo, and in 1799, Napoleon stood before that, that field, and before his quest to conquest, you know, kind of the East, he wanted to rebuild the Roman Empire, he looked out over this field, and he said, all the armies of the world could maneuver their forces on this vast plain. There is no place in the whole world more suited for war than this. It is the most natural battleground on the whole earth. All told, historians say that over 200 battles have been fought there over the centuries, and so you see why Armageddon has earned its awful nickname. It has been a mountain of slaughter over thousands of years. And this is where we come full circle in our study. Because the Bible says the curtain will close in the very same region it got its start. We've been learning that Israel was the ancient starting point for biblical prophecy. We saw that as we looked at Genesis. And we'll see today in Scripture, the last book of the Bible, Revelation, says it is also the future staging ground for Earth's final battle. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Revelation. Very easy to find. It is the last one, so turn there, and we'll ground our, our lesson there today. Um, just to orient those of you who need a little review, um, we looked at a timeline last week. I'm glad it was helpful to some of you. Uh, You said that was really helpful. Just help me get your your, your mind around it. It, These events that, that God has on his prophetic calendar. If you just take a look here, we saw the first coming of Christ, right, Christmas. This is when he was born in Bethlehem. That took Jesus to the cross where he died, was resurrected, ascended to heaven, and after he left, the church was born. That's where we currently live, the church age. And last week we said that will end with an event known as the rapture. When Christ returns to rapture all believers, take them from the earth to be home with him in heaven. You'll notice the arrow comes down, but then it goes back up again, because Jesus actually doesn't touch down on earth. Christ returns, but then that ushers in this period of darkness of the case. Seven years known as the tribulation, which will culminate in this final battle of Armageddon and the second coming of Christ. And this is that moment When Christ will return to the earth a second time, he will put his feet down on the earth in his moment to judge the nations. He will bring with him all raptured and resurrected believers and establish the kingdom of God on earth, this period of peace, a thousand years known as the millennium, and then eternity will begin and we will be with the Lord forever. And if you look at this thing, you can kind of see here that the rapture of the church is really the hinge moment that kind of sets the table for this period known as the Tribulation that culminates in the Battle of Armageddon. If you think about it, when our, when our church, all churches, and it's not, you know, church like, ooh, all through the steeple, uh, it means all Christians everywhere across the globe, when they are raptured, the world will lose much of its population. I mean, some say as many as 70 million people could suddenly, bang, disappear from our nation alone. That's you, that's me, we're gone. We're gone through this, okay? This is important. And predictably, this will plunge the world into disorder and chaos, and it's kind of like you saw in Haiti. There's no infrastructure, a lot of chaos. And that turbulence, as you can imagine, will naturally cause kind of a worldwide outcry for relief and order at any cost, which will set the stage for the emergence of a new world leader who will promise a solution to all the turbulence that's going on. He will promise peace, he will promise security, and offer to be a savior to a world in turmoil. The Bible calls him... The Antichrist. And I want to just tell you before we get into this, this message is kind of split into two. I just want to be real upfront about this. This first part is going to make you, oh, kind of groan. Because honestly, as we learn about the rise of evil that's prophesied in the last days, I just want to be upfront about this. This part, this, this front part of the Antichrist, is going to make you wince. But the second half of today's message is going to make you want to stand up and cheer, honestly. And I hope you will. You'll feel free to do that. Because as we dig, into the prophecy about the return of Christ. It is mind-blowing. It is soul-stirring. It just jazzed me this week as I was kind of studying it. And I just can't wait to share this with you Uh, because you are going to get the book of Revelation in a nutshell today. Revelation is one of those books that people, you know, open it up and all of a sudden the streets are flowing with blood and there are lampstands everywhere and they're like, what is that? I'm going back to Jesus, you know? It's kind of weird. It starts rough, but it ends on a high note. That's what tonight is. You with me? Okay, the author of Revelation is the Apostle John who wrote this in his first epistle. He said, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. You guys know the prefix anti, it means against, so the Antichrist is obviously someone who's against Christ, but that prefix anti can also mean instead of. In other words, the Antichrist will step into this vacuum of leadership and at first appear to be the world's savior. Now, a lot of people like to speculate who the Antichrist is. In fact, if you Google, who is Antichrist? Question mark. I did this this past week, it's research. You get, <laughs> you get about 6.5 million hits. It's unbelievable. I actually, I made a mistake. You know, I clicked on some of the links and predictably some familiar faces appeared from politicians because the Antichrist is rumored, I, um, this is not a Republican or Democrat thing, uh, the Antichrist is rumored to kind of, he's going to be the one who brings peace to the Middle East, which has been a goal of many presidents and political leaders through history. But Antichrist links also led to popular entertainers. And this is, I, I've always been suspicious of that whole, you know, double identity, Hannah Montana, Miley Cyrus, like what is that about? There is, the point is this, it is fruitless to speculate who the Antichrist is because the Bible doesn't tell us. But it does describe to us what he will do in detail in Revelation chapter 13. And that's where I want you to take a look. Chapter 13. This is a prophecy God gave to the Apostle John. It's a vision. It kind of reads like a fever dream, but we're going to break it down. And it says this. It begins, John says, And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He uses all these symbols, and we'll figure out what they mean. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne in great authority you see this term used by the Bible to refer to the Antichrist as a beast. Although the Antichrist will appear at first to be a man of peace, to bring salvation to the world, he will ultimately be unveiled as the world's final, final dictator. This is, this is it. That's why he is called the beast. His leadership will be exposed for its brutality and cruelty, especially towards Israel. That is not surprising. We're learning that there is something there at the epicenter. little interpretation here. You see the different symbols here, right? The beast, the dragon, people are just like evil. They get it confused. But Revelation is what's called apocalyptic literature. And what that means is it uses signs and symbols to forecast the future. And the idea here is that once Christ has raptured us, we're his church, we're gone, the world will be turned over to a new God, small g, comprised of the dragon or the devil, the antichrist or the beast, and the false prophet who is like kind of like the, the, the counterfeit Holy Spirit we know the Christian Trinity Father Son Holy Spirit this is an unholy Trinity the devil the beast and the, anti- and, the, and the false prophet and what we're told here is although he at first appears heroic he will be Satan Superman he is inspired and emboldened and, and the thing is this well if he's the epitome of evil why would people follow such a person scripture says he will be an incredibly charismatic leader Revelation 13.5 says, The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to extend his authority for 42 months. In other words, he'll have a gifted speaking ability. He will be a master politician, a skilled diplomat, an orator of the first rank, and he'll sway the masses. Because we've, we've seen this, right? Spellbinding words of po- power and promise. And when it says he'll exercise his authority for 42 months, you can do the math, that's the equivalent of what? Three and a half years meaning he will promise to bring peace and stability during the first half of the seven-year tribulation. Now, these are empty, these are godless words, and the world, though, will swallow them out of desperation. We've seen this. When our world is desperate, when when people feel squeezed financially, scared politically, people naturally clamor for a leader, a savior, right? That's what we saw with the recession. It was quick, like, oh, my goodness, who's going to bail us out? Oh, government, come help us, you know, kind of this thing. I want you to imagine a leader who steps onto the global stage, into that leadership vacuum, and brings actually peace and security to the Middle East. (laughs) Every president for the last 60 years has dreamed he will be the one to solve the Israeli-Arab conflict. But this guy actually does it. He would be viewed as a hero, a savior around the world. And the Bible says he will consolidate power. Verses 7 and 8 read, He was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation, All inhabitants of the earth will, what's the word here? Worship the beast. As I said, he will not only be against Christ, but he will set himself up as an alternative to Jesus Christ, a God himself. I know this is hard to imagine, but if you step into reality, not really. If you think back about 60 years, the world is full of leaders who use their charisma their cult of personality, and the trappings of Jesus to forward their agenda. In the late 30s and early 40s, when Hitler was moving through Europe and swallowing up whole nations, understandably, people believed he was the Antichrist. He, he offered himself kind of as a messiah with this with divine mission to save Germany. And Check this out. This is amazing in research. On one occasion, Hitler displayed the whip that he often carried to demonstrate that, it, quote, "...in driving out the Jews, I remind myself of Jesus in the temple." He said, when, what Christ began, I will complete. And at one of the Nuremberg rallies, a giant photo of Hitler carried the caption, in the beginning was the word. He appropriated Jesus' language. Hitler was not the Antichrist. You understand why people thought he might be. The Antichrist will speak blasphemies. He will liken his own power to that of God himself. And in reality, it actually is satanic power with one purpose, to annihilate God's people, Israel, the Jews. Verse 18 says, if anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number, and his number is 666. Six, six. Um, for centuries, people have tried to like unlock this code. <laughs> uh, people have used numerology to kind of decode the identity of the Antichrist. For instance, people have numeralized the alphabet. So if you give each letter a number like A equals 100, B equals 101, C equals 102, that kind of thing. If you add up the numeric values of the six letters in Hitler's name, guess what they total? 666. Six, six. Oh, so he must be the Antichrist, right? Wrong. <laughs> the reality is you can pretty much find any formula to pin the tail on any world leader you like, or even on innocent people like the Jonas Brothers. <laughs> if, it's true. If you add up Joe and Nick and divide their middle names by Kevin, you get the same result. It's just, I'm just kidding. The point, some of you are like, man, hardcore on the tweener, you know, boppers today. Just kidding. The, the, the point here is not to predict the identity of the Antichrist. The point the Bible is trying to make is it's trying to unmask his spirit. And it makes us uncomfortable to say this. I just need to call this out. It's uncomfortable to say, actually, you know what? Yes, there is satanic power in the world. I, modern people do not like to say that. They prefer a generic, well, there's evil, maybe it's just kind of bad vibes. Satan is a person. And there is satanic power operative in our world. When people crash jumbo jets into buildings to kill innocent people, that's satanic power. You understand what I'm saying? Satanic power helped ignite the Holocaust. When a gunman enters a school campus and mows down children with a semi-automatic weapon, that's satanic power. So the Bible isn't trying to tell us who the Antichrist is, but rather what he will be like. And he will be inspired by satanic power and he will bring that power to his role as a prominent global leader, quite possibly from a region in Europe. Since the time of the Roman Empire, there hasn't been a single nation or leader with the will or even the power to govern the entire world. But we're seeing these pieces kind of put together in place, particularly in Europe, for the world to be unified under one central government or leader. Um, The European Union, you've heard of, the EU, uh, was founded earlier half the 20th century, Today it has 27 member states that represent about one-third of the world's global economy. Okay, 16 member states have adopted a common currency. You know what it's called? Yeah, the euro. And again, on the surface, if you look at this, the way this is reported is that this is all about economics. That's, that's the world's lens, right? It's about encouraging free trade, integrating economies. Yet if you begin looking through the third lens of scripture, you will see this, this ancient coalition... Of European nations is in many ways creating a modern-day replica of the ancient Roman Empire, if you you template it over one another. Prophecy suggests that the Antichrist is going to preside kind of over a new world order or a new empire in the making. And it really is one that occupies the same territory as ancient Rome, which was was much of, uh, of Europe, the Roman Empire. So out of this European coalition, the Antichrist could possibly emerge. We know that he will come from a Gentile nation. And currently the EU uh, has plans to appoint a supreme leader, a president in the years to come. Now, if you think this is a stretch or alarming or something, you know, I'm just trying to stir up things, not at all. I want you to consider the words of Paul Henri Spake. He served as first president of the UN General Assembly, and he was one-time Secretary General of NATO. Spake is credited with making this stunning statement. He said, we don't need another committee. We have too many already. What we want is a man of sufficient stature to hold the allegiance of all people and lift us out of the economic morass into which we are sinking. Send us such a man, and be he God or devil, we will receive him. That's chilling. Be he God or devil, we will receive him. We're that desperate. Again, when conditions are right, we're out of here. We are not here. The church is raptured. But when conditions are right, economic meltdown, Global instability, present. people are often willing to follow any leader who offers a way out. And that's what the Antichrist will offer, salvation. The Bible says he will do that by controlling the economy. Verses 16 and 17 here say, He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead, so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. You've heard of the mark of the beast. This is not a decorative tattoo. It has a very practical purpose. It is a financial tool. You get this? And a, a tool of financial control. Anybody who doesn't bear the mark is unable to buy or sell in this new world economy. And 20 years ago, this was like, oh, that's crazy. Like people having a, something on them that can identify their personal information and records and banking. No way, it's a science fiction thing. That technology is here today. <laughs> I mean, some of us have pets with one of those uh, doggy jacks. You know what I'm talking about? They put that little microchip underneath the skin so when your dog wanders off or gets lost, you can track him. They're actually using it now with Alzheimer's patients, recording all their medical history, all their financial, because they don't have that ability to recall it, and so they're planting that in. Those are benign purposes right now. But we are told that the Antichrist will harness technology as a way of controlling the economy. Not surprisingly, that will be backed up by military power. Revelation says, men worship the beast and asked, who is like this guy? Who can make war against him? He will be the unchallenged champion of a new world order. Again, we're gone. We're not here. We're watching this. This is the headlines when the church is in in the heaven. But he will have the missiles and the muscles to back this up. Political power, economic control, and military might. When Christ raptures the church, the Antichrist will just step into this vacuum and in many ways dominate the world. Makes it makes you glad to be gone, doesn't it, church? Yes? We are not here. Thank heavens for us. We will not witness this season in, 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 in the earth's history. But it, this will be a dark moment. And the Antichrist, while initially promising peace, will then wage war. Against who? Against Jews and against all Christians. See, although you and I, all believers, will be raptured in heaven before the Antichrist appears. The Bible says new converts will come to Christ during the years of the tribulation. Scripture says this will infuriate the Antichrist. Remember, his whole purpose is to steal worship from Jesus. It's not the economy. It's not politics. I'm stealing worship from Jesus. And he will take his wrath out on those new Christians. Verses 7 and 10 describe the campaign. It says he was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword, he will be killed. In other words, the Bible says, this is dark, I'll just, I just told you. During the tribulation, many new Christians will be martyred for their faith, persecuted, tortured, and eventually killed because they say, I will bow only to the name of Jesus Christ. And I told you, this is the part that makes us groan, isn't it? I mean, even though we're not present for this, this is painful to think about. And We should just take a moment to thank God. We are not on the earth during the reign of the antichrist remember this this satanic person is not equal to god he is a created being he does not have absolute power not by a long shot god has him on a chain revelation is always reminding us that the antichrist can only do what god allows him to do but he will permit him to wreak havoc and to persecute israel and believers but ultimately god is still god And no enemy of his can go beyond the limits that he sets. And that limit is seven years. Seven years of darkness the world has never seen. What happens at the end of that period is stunning. See, here's the twist. You ever notice every good story, the stories that you love, the movies that we watch, Lord of the Rings, Braveheart, it plunges you into darkness and despair before surprising you with a twist at fr- from the end, at the, at the outside. There, there's like this upturn. Every story that speaks to our hearts has this ancient arc to it, and this is not fantasy. See, the Bible is a Jewish book, and Hebrew literature is cyclical. That means just when you get to the end, all of a sudden you discover, wait a minute, I'm right back at the beginning. And sure enough, Armageddon, the final battle of the planet Earth, is the end which signals a brand new beginning, the greatest Come back the world has ever witnessed. Can we say the word come back? In a final act of rebellion against God, scripture says, the Antichrist will set himself up in the reconstructed temple of Jerusalem, the epicenter, ground zero that we presented in the first week. And he will demand that the world worship him. At that moment, Revelation 16 says, then I saw the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, there's this unholy trinity, And they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. I want you to picture this moment. All the armies, all the militaries, the troops of the world, descending on Megiddo, this field in Israel, the Mount of Slaughter. And you would think, this is it. This is the end. Doomsday. Because this chilling rise of evil, it is met by something that just blows it away. It is met by the return of the king, the Lord of lords. I want you to flip this page to Revelation 19, um, because this blew me away this week, and I hope it will for you. I don't know what you think of when you hear Jesus is coming back. I remember seeing a bumper sticker, Jesus is coming back, look busy. When he comes out of heaven, what do you imagine him like? My guess is, is, you know, it's that guy with the long flowing hair, the white choir robe, the blue sash, you know, waving. That's what our culture suggests. Our culture says, well, it's like a, he's like a buddy Christ. You know, the carpenter, he's a fisherman from Nazareth. He goes fishing with you. Jesus, meek and mild. And that might be comforting here in the present. But when Christ steps onto the field for the battle of Armageddon in Revelation 19, he ain't nothing like this. When Christ returns, Scripture says, every eye will see him, but he will like... Look, nothing like this world has ever seen. Read with me. It says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written. Let's read this together. King of kings and Lord of lords. If you've imagined Jesus' return of the service, how have you pictured him? Sandals, choir robe, meek and mild, or eyes on fire with a purifying presence that literally burns away all the pretense and the posturing and man's power and how good I am. A robe dripping in blood, a reminder of his sacrifice. This is a man you tried to kill and I'm coming as a conquering king. And a full length body tattoo on his leg announcing his title and authority so nobody misses it. A sword coming out of his mouth To slay the nations, he will return in every way as the ultimate warrior and unleash, real candidly, the wrath of God as he confronts evil, the Antichrist, and all who defy him. And this will be the most epic encounter in the history of the world. I want you to imagine legions of angels, raptured saints, that's you and me. We are brought back with him we will all descend together from heaven and hit darkness head-on in battle. We can't get our minds around this, so I want to help you. I want to help you envision what Christ's return to save his people Israel might be like and show you a clip from one of my favorite movies, Lord of the Rings. If you recall from Lord of the Rings, Middle Earth is under siege by an unholy trinity, Saruman, Sauron, the ring. Tolkien was actually a student of ancient prophecy. That's where he got that trinity from. And at the darkest hour of Middle-earth, this climactic battle occurs outside of Helm's Deep. Do you remember this? This is the fortress where all mankind is staying. They're held up. But this vast sea, this army of orcs, these foul, demonic beasts, like as far as the eyes can see, they're coming over the walls with one purpose, to annihilate the race of men forever. But as the battle begins, Aragorn remembers the words of Gandalf, an ancient prophecy. He said, look to my coming. At first light at dawn, look to the east. And this scene, I'll just be candid, it gave me chills the first time I saw it. I remember sitting in the theater and being like, holy smokes, it's a revelation. It made me want to stand up and cheer. I hope you, you, can, you can cheer, you can clap after clip. Because just as all hope seems lost, a rider on a white horse appears. And King stands alone, not alone. Rohira. But in the end, it's only a passing thing. This shadow, even darkness must pass. A new day will come. A new yeah, Let's hear it for that. Awesome. I, I, that scene gives me chills every time I see it. How, how, when so much bad has happened, how can the world go back to what it ever was? It won't. It's going to be a brand new world cleansed of every foul thing and evil sent to the pit of hell. Now, I want, the, I want you to get this. Because I think that scene gives us a foretaste of the battle described here in Revelation 19. At the world's darkest, most desperate hour, Christ will return with the armies of heaven behind him, not as the Lamb of God offering forgiveness to his enemies. That was his first coming. But as the Lion of Judah pouring out God's judgment and wrath on all that is foul and evil and keeps his broken world in bondage. I want you to imagine that moment. Raptured saints and angels fighting side by side against the sea of evil, and behind all of this is behind our warrior king on a white horse leading the charge with fire in his eyes. This is the fulfillment of the ancient covenant with Israel back in Genesis. You remember that? I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And I'll just be candid this is not a pretty picture an entire region awash in blood and carnage that flows out of the judgment of God on his enemies. Why does that image stir us? For some of us, it stirs our soul. For some of us, it's disturbing. <laughs> uh, just to call that out, this is a problem for a lot of people when it comes to Christianity. I mean, if, if the Christian God is so kind and loving, what is with all this death and destruction? It's, some people are like, oh, that's so Old Testament, that's why I don't like the Old Testament. I want Jesus meek and mild. What happened to him? Because that's hard to swallow. Justice always is, but you need to get your arms around this emotionally to see the beauty of God's final judgment and revelation, because every one of us has been made in God's image. We have an innate sense of justice that revolts when we witness evil and abuse in this world. Do we not? A couple of weeks ago, I was watching this report on, uh, it was on Dateline or 2020 or something. It was on sex trafficking in Thailand. And um, it told the story of this brothel in Thailand where over 100 girls worked as sex slaves, some of them as young as eight years old. And it told how some of them were taken from their families. <coughs> Sorry. I have a 70-year-old girl. And these girls are um, they're pimped out to foreign tourists to do whatever sexual deviance they want. I'm sitting on my couch watching this, and my stomach started getting sick. I felt like I wanted to jump, through the screen. This is going to disturb some of you. I felt like I wanted to destroy the men who did this to these girls because I think of that evil touching my child, violating my children in that way. That is how God feels when he looks at our world. you understand this? When God sees the abuse and the wickedness and unspeakable horrors done to his creatures. And his creation turns his stomach. We see things in this world, you and I see them, that make us want to say, never again. No more. And when Christ returns to judge the nations, that's the kind of justice he's bringing. He will deliver on all those who defy his name and abuse his children. It's not some heavy-handed, indiscriminate, turn-or-burn kind of vengeance. It is the final assault on all that is evil and godless and wicked in this world. And do you know what the response of, uh, of his people will be to this judgment? We think of judgment. Oh, joy! Celebration! It was amazing. The show, this 2020 show ended. I'm like, I, I'm getting all worked up during the commercial, and it ended with a story that they had a nighttime raid into this brothel. And they literally freed dozens of girls and they showed them, carrying them out to waiting police cars into the hands of doctors, and they were bringing them to a safe house where they could be treated. It was a, power, it was a powerful moment. Here's what, here's what shocked me, it was an amazing moment, I love this. They brought the owners of the brothel out in handcuffs and they were putting their head down, and as they came out it was amazing because a crowd had gathered in the neighborhood and they just started cheering. They just started cheering and they started throwing garbage at these guys. They started throwing rocks. Some of them took their shoes off and threw shoes, whatever they could get their hands on, because they were so jubilant that justice had finally been served. The police had to actually take the men away for their own protection, and then the crowd spontaneously started trashing the building where the brothel was housed. They smashed the windows, and they actually set it on fire. They burnt it to the ground, and as it burned, they danced, and they celebrated, and there was something right about that. You understand that? It made me want to dance with them. Because you're celebrating the end of evil. Yeah. Justice gets served, and it's wiped clean, never to happen again. And when Christ returns to judge the world at Armageddon, we're told they'll be rejoicing, they'll be like cheering, like the entire creation roaring its approval. Revelation 19 says, After this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! salvation and glory and power belong to our God for what's the word true and just are his judgments Armageddon's outcome is not going to lead to weeping and despair but joy and jubilation over justice perfectly administered so for those of you who are disturbed by this I want you to imagine if things in this world weren't judged you don't want a world like that you don't want a God like that Can you imagine if God just stood by, looked at the brothel in Thailand and said, well, you know, I don't want to be judgmental and just let it go? You want a God like that? I don't want a God who lets that go. And in your heart, you don't either. We all know that evil must be judged and sent to the pit where it belongs, wrongs righted, the weak defended, and wounds healed. And that's what revelation justice is about. Only Christ is capable of judging perfectly. True and just are his judgments. The reason we don't trust justice is because human justice is imperfect. It's often vindictive. But this judgment will be perfect because the judge himself is perfect. And this is why humanity will rejoice. Revelation 19, if you look at verse 6 and 7, look at this. It says Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. Can we make some noise right now for the coming Christ? There's going to be noise. A little bit of noise. Football Christ. Football Christ. Make noise. There's an amazing moment here. Is anybody glad that Christ is coming to judge wickedness? On the surface, wrath and judgment, I get it. I get it. It's been a problem for me. It can be seen as like revolting, but at its heart, it's beautiful. It is the essence of righteousness. Scripture says this battle will be over so quickly. <laughs> the Bible only uses two verses to describe the outcome. Verse 20 of Revelation 19 says, But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, and the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And this is, this is going to sound funny to say, but you know what? Thank God for hell. I'm not, I'm not trying to go firing and brimstone on you, but the Bible is clear. Sin is real. Hell is hot. And that's where the Antichrist and his minions go. You understand this? Satan, the one who inspired them as well, ends up there as well. But I, he's actually at the end of the millennium. Revelation 20.10 says, And the devil, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. There's that, that unholy trinity. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is justice. This is justice. The unholy trinity who has been the source and inspiration of so much human misery and suffering and a pain across time wind up in everlasting torment. Eternity without God, that's what hell is. That's what hell is. Hell is just God giving people what they want, life without him. That's what hell is. See, in God's story, there must be an end before there's a brand new beginning. And that's what this is. The end of the world is the brand new beginning. At the end of Armageddon, Revelation says, as the blood waters recede, this is what we'll see. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is where it is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself, let's read it, will be with them and be their God. This will be the first time in the history of mankind that we will experience a world completely ruled by its creator and savior, Jesus Christ. Perfect peace, justice, joy. No one has ever experienced this before. He says he will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more, let's read these things out loud, no more what, no more... Death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain for the old order of things has passed away. That's over. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. See, the end is really the beginning. The world will end as it began with mankind reunited with God in an eternal relationship. It will be unmarred by sin or brokenness. Turn to Genesis with the word speaking The word of God speaking new life into existence. No more crying, no more suffering, no more pain. The old is gone, the new has come. Let me spend some time this week just to look at Revelation. Revelation says a river will flow down the city of God by which is planted the tree of life whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. Healing of the nations. In other words, we're back in paradise, the world for which you and I were originally made. And we will rule and we will reign with him forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen? my question is do you long for it to come true the return of our king that's the purpose of prophecy not to face the future with fear or dread but joy and eager expectation can you imagine that day i mean can you imagine when when evil is judged perfectly when sin and suffering are wiped from the earth i mean prophecy is meant to whet our appetite for the future to come And Revelation gives us a foretaste of a broken world that gets set right once and for all by its creator and get us hungering for Christ's return. Do you long for that? The the final words of prophecy in the Bible come from the mouth of Christ himself. Let's read these together. He says, Behold what? Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. Jesus says those words, I am coming soon, three times in the closing passage, so we don't miss it. Do you know what John's response was? He said, amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Is that your prayer? As you think about the future, about your life, can you face it with that kind of confidence? Oh, I hope this happens tomorrow. Do you know for sure you will be on the side of the risen Lord and Savior when he returns to judge the quick and the dead? More than that, are you longing for his return? Are you working to give signs of the kingdom right now for justice, for peace, for righteousness, to flood the earth? I hope, I hope this is the prayer of our church. Come, Lord Jesus. We are waiting and we are ready. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Let's stand together. All our campuses, everybody together, we're going to stand and pray. Father God, we thank you. We say we are waiting and we are ready. We are not ready because we have lived perfect lives, but because we're perfectly forgiven by Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, when we were on the other side, God. We were your enemies. You died for us. You came. You gave yourself on a cross. You took all the evil, all the suffering the world had to offer, and you pinned it to yourself on a cross, and you died for me. Thank you, Jesus. I thank you, Lord, for that forgiveness that comes through your cross. And now, Father... By the power of your resurrection, we say, come. We can't wait for you, Lord, to bring your justice to this world. I pray right now every man and woman here would feel your Holy Spirit, Lord God, confirming in their life the purpose for which they were alive at this moment in history. We get to help bring the kingdom. We get to announce it to the nations. I pray that we could be a a, a source of healing and encouragement, Father, particularly for those people who are hurting in our broken world and in the lives of influence you've given us. I pray for our family and friends, Father. Open their eyes. Give them the light of Christ, Lord. Let them see that you are the Savior and God of all. And we confess that. That's our confession. And all God's people pray together. Amen. Amen.